Welcome to season two of Midwesternish, a podcast where we discuss philosophies of work, culture, and everything in between. The first guest of season two is Brock Leach. I'm excited about this one because Brock is full of wisdom and life experience and is actually a personal mentor to me. Brock worked at PepsiCo for nearly 30 years, where he served at various times as CEO of Tropicana, CEO of Frito-Lay, and finally Chief Innovation Officer of Pepsi. You actually probably snack on some of the products he helped lead to market, things like Frito's Scoops, restaurant-style tortilla chips, and more, which we'll talk about in the podcast. So join us as we discuss how to create innovation in large organizations that actually resist change without realizing it, as well as why executive fear often stifles innovation and how to overcome it, why mistakes are always learning opportunities, and finally, how we can begin to create meaningful, actionable diversity in our organizations. Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to another episode of Midwesternish, where we discuss philosophies of work, culture, and everything in between. Uh, our guest on this episode is Brock Leach, who is a very seasoned veteran of the corporate world, has a lot of experience across multiple industries, primarily at PepsiCo. And we are going to discuss innovation within large organizations and corporations and what that looks like and how we should think about our careers. Uh, welcome, Brock, and thank you for your time. Oh, Alex, thank you. It's a, a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. Yeah. I know you're a very busy man. Um, so, you know, to start, for those who don't know you, um, why don't you introduce yourself and talk about your career at, at PepsiCo and your background and, and what you've done? Okay. Well, um, so... I spent 24 years at PepsiCo, and then I've spent the last 11 or so years as a minister. So it's a circuitous journey, but um, most of my professional life was um, in the corporate world, and I loved it. Uh, it was a really great experience. Um, so I, you know, hired into marketing at Frito-Lay, a division of PepsiCo, and I did all kinds of different jobs there, and then ended up uh, working as the CEO of Frito-Lay North America and then of Tropicana Products, which is another PepsiCo division. And then my last stint was as chief innovation officer for the corporation, um, we're principally working on how to improve the health and wellness of our product portfolio, but it was also overseeing health and wellness corporate policy for the company. So, so it was a really um, diverse and fun career. I was lucky. That's great. Yeah. And I know that we've talked a lot about um, careers. Uh, Brock has been a great mentor to me um, for thinking about my own professional life. And, you know, one thing that really stuck out to me, Brock, when we talked about, um, you know, starting a career and making moves and doing your work and doing it well, was the difference between um, solving problems and just trying to climb the ladder. And I think that your philosophy on that really helped inform how I approach my own work. So can you articulate that a little bit more and just talk about how, um, you know, some of the stories where you looked around you and saw, um, you know, people that were, you know, just trying to climb the ladder versus just getting a track record of solving problems? 
Yeah. You know, so my experience is that either because of popular entertainment or celebrity CEOs, people really get a distorted view of how you build a successful career. And, and you know, obviously it's not everybody, but a lot of people believe it's about building your brand and knowing the right people and um, demonstrating that you're moving up into the right assignments and moving up the ladder. Um, and they focused, in other words, on the optics and uh, how to build something that looks good as opposed to building a track record of making things happen, which is um, really, at the end of the day, what companies value. And it's also a lot more satisfying work. Um, so my experience is that all of that stuff really doesn't count for a lot. Um, what counts for a lot is, uh, you know, building uh, trust, you know, because in order to accomplish any change in a company, you really have to uh, build the trust of the people you work with. Um, and you can do that by identifying problems that need to be fixed and taking the initiative to invite people to help you fix them. Um, and, you know, together you can accomplish things that you didn't think you could do independently. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, my experience is the people who got ahead in my corporate experience, at least, were those who took the initiative to tackle problems that they saw that nobody else was taking on. They had the courage to some degree to go against the grain, you know, to do take assignments that really weren't seen to be prestigious or the right thing to do in your career, but which, you know, which could make a difference. And had enough knowledge, enough self-knowledge to know how they could make a difference, you know, and that they could make a difference in that situation. So, um, it's, it's interesting because despite, you know, popular myth, the people I know that are running large corporations on the 80% level are all people who are highly trustworthy uh, because it's taken building that trust um, to get to the point where they got, you know, just, you're working with people who whose interests are all in common at some level and you got to be able to work with them well. So, that's my experience. I think um, that's not always clear. And there's, you know, of course, the shelves are full of self-help books in the business world about mm -hmm. how to position yourself. But they really kind of miss the larger point of, hey, you do good things and good things happen because people want to be part of it. That makes a lot of sense. Now, what would you say to um, the dynamic of competition where um, in a corporate environment, this, the sort of courage that you're talking about of not being so concerned with the prestige um, is almost playing a different game than others might be playing, if that makes sense. And um, is there any, I guess, what would you say to anybody who sees that approach as potentially naive or um, not, not indicative of the realities of a very, like what can be like cutthroat corporate environments? Yeah, I mean, PepsiCo, when I started, was pretty, it, it was an up or out organization. Um, and, you know, it still is to a degree. So I'm, I understand that impulse about it. So it's me or them. But the truth is that if a company is succeeding, they need all the talent they got. Um, and the higher, you know, the more leadership roles you assume, the more that you have to get the best out of the people around you. You know, it's not just about what you can do. You can't get there by stabbing other people in the back. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, can't, you can't build that trust that I was talking about. It just doesn't work. So, you, you know, people can play that game um, to a certain degree and uh, it may temporarily work in their progression up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Typically, there are people who have to switch companies a lot mm-hmm. because they can only get so far within a company and then they have to go to another place. And, you know, if that's what you want to do, power to you. I don't think it leads to a very satisfying career. And I don't think ultimately uh, it gets you into the highest echelons of leadership if that's where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So it becomes a limiting factor for yourself being too self-preservationist. And it makes me think of um, Robert Wright wrote this great book called Non-Zero, where he discusses the two primary worldviews that we operate under, which is a zero-sum worldview, which is the one you're describing of it's it's you or me, and a non-zero worldview, which is that uh, you know if you win, I win, and we can find a way to win together, and that those mutually beneficial um, approaches to life, business, relationships are actually what wins in the long run. So it has me thinking about innovation, which you are very skilled at, having been chief innovation officer at Pepsi Co. and CEO of both Frito Lay and Tropicana. Um, how does how is innovation potentially stifled by internal competition, and and how do you um, you know what are some ways that you can navigate that to bring innovation to companies that need it if you are in a uh, competitively like a stifling environment with competition um i can't, that was like a lot of questions <laughs> it's it's a multifaceted thing i i think um the biggest obstacle to innovation in a corporate setting particularly a publicly traded corporate setting mm-hmm. is the incredible pressure on immediate earnings and any kind of innovation requires uh, some investment of time at least um, and eventually some investment of money to do something new and so that's the dynamic that's always at play of we got to make the quarterly numbers and yet if we're going to get to an idea that's really breakthrough two years from now we got to make an investment in it and i think all companies to one degree or another are subject to that um But I think part of the way you get there is you pick problems that um, initially at least are within bounds for the company, that they leverage the company's assets. Um, So more people in the company can win, you know, because they want to see the company succeed from different functional perspectives. Uh, And so if you're clear about what the company's value proposition is, what its unique competencies and strengths are, Mm-hmm. And you work on innovation spaces related to those, it's not so much a competition. Mm-hmm. And so I think the um, the way to do that is to also encourage people to take the initiative. Uh, and so in my case, there are a number of case, examples where we uh, somebody would take the initiative to gather a team together to solve a particular problem that they saw. And quite often it was an informal team. You know, it was people from across functions or groups who uh, saw this as an opportunity and felt like, well, we could do something with this and had some ideas about it. And um, you got permission to spend a little time on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, you know, no 
commitment of money or anything. Um, and what would happen in those is you pretty clearly define the problem you wanted to solve and you'd play off each other. And in the course of fact-finding and ideation, you'd find that you emerged with an idea that was far different and far better than any one person could have created on their own. And out of that, breakthroughs happen. And at that point, you have a whole group of people who invested themselves, you know, ideally from different functions and different perspectives, who are want to pitch this idea. They want to see it happen. And it's very hard for management to come come down on that. <laughs> you know, you know what, once you can see it's something that's that's apparently a good idea and you you know how it builds on what the company's good at doing and how it plays strategically, it's very hard to say no, we don't want to go to the next step of trying this out. And um, so I spent a lot of my career running a marketing department at Frito, and we made that part of the culture was bring your best ideas and we're going to have a forum where we can decide what we're going to do with them. You know, and we're, it's going to be public. It's going to be transparent. It's going to be clear decision making and bring the best ideas and we'll decide when we can put it in the calendar of activities. And uh, everybody was invited to these forums or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of funding projects based on what management thought, we would fund projects based on what bubbled up. And it would create a, a process where people who had good ideas and passions about things could bring them. Obviously, not all ideas, you know, got to the point where they were approved. But I would say the ones that did, it was almost always consensus that this was a really great idea. And so that made our success in going to market that much stronger. You know, we didn't, we weren't um, iterating in the marketplace. We were doing the development work that was required. Um, and if we had a big idea, we we had the money because we hadn't invested in a lot of other things. We had the money to go put behind it. And yeah. so that, you know, that kind of setting the stage um, and failure, you know, when, when you do something like that, you can't um, only say that the winners are the people whose ideas get approved. You have to acknowledge that every time you fail, you're learning something. And out of that comes another idea. And so the credit goes to people who are, who are out there trying things and who are developing ideas and who are bringing more people into it and are thinking in more complex terms about it. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes not who you know or not what your rank is in the organization or all any of that. It's about, is this a good idea or not? And people can see that that's how the decisions are made and they're emboldened to be more innovative. Great. More organizations should have leaders like you at the helm who are, um, you know, embodying that approach because it obviously worked very well during your tenure at Pepsi. I think one of the things, there's two things that you mentioned that I want to circle back to. The first is um, that impulse or tendency that um, higher level management has to create solutions in a silo and um, you know, we, in the design world, we call it like user experience without considering the user experience or, or maybe without asking more probing questions about the solution that's being proposed. Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think in, in corporate environments, so much of 
what could be innovative is stifled by the internal power dynamics and how can organizations that are um, that that are falling prey to that how can you overcome that if you're not at that executive level how can you create that change well I, I think typically it's two things that come together one of them is a lot of senior executives are motivated by fear you know if, if they're really invested and they have to have this job or they have to get to the next level they're scared to death about what's going to go wrong. And, and uh, many people, not all, have this idea that being a senior executive is having all the answers. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're weak if you don't know what the solution to a complex problem is. And out of that combination of fear and desire to f- appear smart and strong, <laughs> and that, <laughs> yeah. um, people people suggest solutions that seem to them to be the best ones they can think of. And uh, as opposed to saying, hey, I'm really worried about this. I think this is a problem for us. We need to address it. Let's go out and bring the ideas. I don't have the ideas, but I know they exist. And I know I have a great team who can figure it out. And let's go Let's go to work on this. It's an exciting opportunity. Um, if you spend your time doing that, you end up, with far better outcomes than if it's, this is what we have to go do. It's a crisis. Let's go do this. People will begrudgingly do it, but they can see the flaws in it right from the get-go. Right. And, uh, you know, they're, they'll be afraid of being part of something that doesn't work out. So it just doesn't, it just never works well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you to know, your point about like, oh, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say the companies that work in innovation space all the time, a lot of the tech companies, that's why they're so far out on it. You know, they're two to three years out on developing ideas and failing and iterating them again. They're working on spaces that they see as both opportunities or they may be afraid of the competition, but they're giving themselves a lot of runway on it. You know, they're, instituting the kind of culture I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and to your point about the, um, a lot of top executives being motivated by fear and how that trickles down and there becomes this like culture of fear where, um, you know, the, the person at the top or those, a group at the top is afraid of not looking like they have all the answers. So they, um, they don't listen to those who are in more middle management or, or other roles below middle management. And um, I guess the question that I have is, how can someone who is maybe operating in a culture of of fear to some degree um, break that cycle in a corporate environment where they aren't an executive and um, they're still within that culture, but they see a way to make a change um, once they recognize it? Yeah, yeah, it's hard for me to generalize an answer to that, but I think in my experience, yeah. <laughs> in my in my experience, I think you know, seeing seeing a problem that you nobody wants to tackle with that you you think you know what the solution might be like, and getting a group of people together to work on it, um, it's hard to get that flywheel spinning in the right direction. But once progress is made and people can see how this is going to work then the people who are fearful want you on their team. Mm-hmm. 
you know, um, and because they want to see you do that in a different, in whatever, to address whatever fear is floating around in their heads. Right. So I think, I think it can be done. It requires individuals to take the initiative to say, hey, you know what, I think this over here is a problem and I think I can fix it or at least I can see a way that it might be fixed and I want to bring in some people with me to, to help work on this. Um, it's kind of a skunk works thing usually. And it's usually right. people in other, other departments who say, yeah, this is not, this is messed up. We could do this better. Uh, and, but once you, you know, you get one or two of those things under your belt, then it becomes, Hey, who can we get to solve this problem that I'm scared of? <laughs> and, and um, it, it becomes, you know, it, it, it starts to take care of itself. And then, you know, they, they learn, you know, they learn that it's about creating a, a, a culture that actually can solve a lot of different problems by really using the talent that's at hand more effectively. Right. And, and you keep coming back to this, uh, like talking about building consensus, building coalitions, building a team. And that really speaks to uh, when I was providing you with some initial questions before we did this podcast about how you had invented certain products at Frito, which we'll get to in a minute. And you said, I didn't, <laughs> I can't take credit for it. I was, you know, there's primary movers, I think was the phrase that you use, but there's not any one person that you can point to and say, you know, that's the person that did this. It's more of a, a team effort. So um, I it's think that's all, important. Yeah, it's always, I mean, the, the real question is who's the instigator, you know, who, who kind of got the ball rolling, but nothing that I've ever been involved with have I done by myself, you know, in a large organization that just, it can't happen. It's a matter of how you build commitment um, and how you build an idea and how you build commitment to it with a bunch of other people. Right. So it's, you know, some of it is paying attention to the marketplace and seeing what opportunities are out there. And some of it is recognizing that, um, you know, there's an opportunity that really needs to be addressed and, and just um, starting down that path. But then success really hinges on a whole bunch of other people seeing the light and getting on board and making it a better idea than what you were originally thinking. Right. And I, I want to talk about three of your uh, main projects that you've told me about. Um, uh, the the first being uh, restaurant style tortilla chips, which uh, you were one of the, the primary movers of that and how it really arose almost like um, by happenstance from a competitor in, uh, I think it was Houston that you said. Or yeah. So can you talk about that one? Yeah. So I, I did a bunch of um, kind of off uh, off the radar sort of jobs, but one of them was uh, working in field marketing. Um, Frito has a store door delivery system, a massive sales force that operates routes all over every store where you see Frito products. And um, so it's a big operation. And uh, we began to realize there were a lot of regional differences. We knew that in our in our category, a lot of local competitors. And so I was working in the Southwest as the, um, I guess I was director of marketing in the Southwest at the time. And we were paying attention to what was going on in the marketplace. And in Houston, a restaurant company started bagging very thin, light, crisp, white tortilla chips um, and selling them in local Hispanic oriented chains. 
and others. And we started looking at the numbers. We'd go on market tours and see this stuff and see it was the shelves were wiped out. And we started looking at the numbers and the the turns on this product were unbelievable. It was very, very small distribution. So um, we, of course, had Doritos and we had a, a version of Tostitos that was a kind of a thick, round, yellow corn tortilla chip, um, but nothing like this. And so uh, we started picking up samples of this and taking it back to R&D and saying, hey, why can't we do this? Um, and there were all kinds of reasons why we couldn't do that. It was in a clear bag and you would see the breakage at the bottom and they're, you know, our, you know, we're, that's going to be a bag of sand by the time it gets to the shelf, and on and on and on. Um, and we said, well, let's try it. And so we we pursued it. I got the tortilla chip brand people mm -hmm. um, interested in this project, and um, we got R and D on board, and we got distribution friends to work with us on how they might do this and how we could avoid breakage. And we insisted it had to be a clear bag. And all mm -hmm. of that. And at the end of the day, um, it just was a runaway success nationally. It kind of caught the edge of when Tex-Mex and Mexican food were spreading across the U.S. This would have been, you know, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it took off. And so then later, you know, as that was unfolding, we added Tostitos salsas. Later, we realized that you could make a scooped version of Tostitos, which is a whole other story. And um, that turned out to be a huge line extension. And um, so I don't know the actual size of the brand today, but I think at retail, it's somewhere around $7 billion globally. For um, just the restaurant style tortilla chips? And the salsa, yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. So, um, yeah, it became a huge business. Um, but it, it was not, you know, we didn't, it was a competitive idea. We did it better. Our product was more consistent, tasted better, performed better. Um, and it leveraged our competencies. You know, at one point I remember having a conversation. We were trying to do salsas and the only, the only um, dips we had were Frito's bean dip. I don't know if you ever had Frito's bean dip, but. You know, my... Uh... <laughs> My grandpa used to have it when he would watch like race car, uh, <laughs> right. the race cars on Sunday going laps. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's not a bad product, um, but it, we, 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 sold, we sold it in cans. Um, so anyway, we wanted, we wanted to do salsas and we wanted to do it in glass jars because that was what people expected. You want a fresh looking tasting salsa. And there are all kinds of reasons why this was a problem. You know, it's going to break in the route trucks. Um, we don't, you know, we're not, we don't handle glass anywhere else in the system. Uh, people are going to see the imperfections in the products, blah, blah, blah. And it's going to be light exposure. And so, um, I mean, at one point I remember saying, why do we have this route sales system if we can't handle fragile, fresh products? Right. right? It's a very expensive system. And if we can't do this, what can we do? And that got the ball, <laughs> changed the dialogue about how we could do it. <laughs> oh, sure. And um, so that's the kind of thing of, you know, if, if, if what you're doing makes sense from the user's perspective and is really exciting and attractive, and it does at some level fit with your company competencies, um, then, you know, you can usually make these things work. Well, and one of the things that, 
you know, to go back to the fear, right? Like there was fear of the, the chips being bags of sand. There was fear of the uh, the salsa having light exposure or breaking in the truck. Did any of that actually come to fruition or were they just interesting problems to solve? Say that again. Did they, were they... Like, were, was it actually just like a problem that you guys needed to solve or did that stuff actually happen? Like, I, it seems like those things that were, that were fears did not come to fruition. So, um, you know, did you guys have to innovate around it at all or, or like, how did that look? Um, well, sometimes we did. I mean, um, so another, uh, <laughs> another project that I have the scars from is wow chips. Do you remember wow chips? That's one of the ones I wanted to ask you about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, that was a product made with something called Olestra, which was a non-nutritive oil. And it had been developed over many years by Procter & Gamble. And the idea was that it was a large molecule that tasted and behaved in the mouth like oil, but it wasn't digested. So it just flowed through the body and you didn't you didn't get any calories. So in the case of like potato chips, it would cut the calories in half because half the calories were related to the oil. Right. And, um, so, you know, that was, you could, and it tasted great. They were really great tasting products. So, so Procter and Gamble spent all kinds of money developing this and testing it and going for FDA approval. And the place where it made sense to them to get approval was in the salty snack category because of the relatively high vegetable oil content. And they also owned Pringles at the time. They had some food brands at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were about a 60-some share, and Pringles was about a six share. Um, but to make this work for, you know, commercially, they had to have us in the game. And at least it sure made it a lot better. And our management was concerned that if we were not in the game, this could be a huge competitive issue. You know, here's one of our competitors, albeit small, with mm-hmm. – a product that could be breakthrough. And um, so that was a case of kind of mutual assured destruction. (laughs) And, and um, we were just very competitive with, with them on a bunch for a bunch of reasons. Uh, And culturally we're very different companies. With Pringles, you were competitive. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. You said that their market share was so much smaller. Well, it was, but they were in our category and they were a behemoth company. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Part of that was because Eagle Snacks, which was a project of Anheuser-Busch, had come into the market out of the blue um, with a very high quality set of products uh, a couple of years before that. And um, we had had to scramble um, and we were eventually able to just beat them uh, with better quality products and more more innovation, but we were really sensitive to big companies with resources coming into our category. So P and G could have been, you know, could have played that big time. And so we were afraid, and they were afraid, and out of that came an overly ambitious <laughs> project to to sell uh, this in our category. And so we we subbranded it all. Wow. Um, and we went through a long period of time of getting FDA approval. Uh, but it turns out that um, if you ate an enormous quantity of wow chips and other foods, you could end up with really bad diarrhea. 
And and it wasn't like anything that was seriously hurt you, but it was certainly unpleasant. Right. Uh, and the FDA, as part of approving this, uh, required us to put a label on the product that said, may cause loose stools and cramping. Um, now, who wants to have fat-free potato chips that may cause loose stools and cramping? You know, it's like, it was, right. it was, it was not something that went with our occasion. Yeah. You don't want like a warning label or something on your... <laughs> right. right. And the irony is we had tested all kinds of warnings because we knew they were going to do something. And just to test the range, we had put things like may cause cancer. And they had no indication that it would cause cancer. But we tested that just to see how people would respond. And people are like, well, you know, you're going to die of something. Really? But, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, we're all going to die of something. And if I could have fat-free, ha- ha- fat-free half-the-calorie potato chips, you know, my life would be so, so much better. But anyway, it turns out that they didn't feel that way about loose stools and cramping. So, so cancer was okay, just yeah. not loose <laughs> right. right. You know, it's not why I eat potato chips. So at any event, um, that might have been okay, except for the fact that uh, Michael Jacobson and the Center for Science and the Public Interest, who's a food watchdog nonprofit, and actually pretty effective, um, they just took this on as a campaign because they were afraid that this ingredient would be across the entire food supply before anybody really knew the health consequences. Mm -hmm. And um, so they just played up the whole... Uh, it turns out that they're PR and marketing geniuses, and they they drove a huge amount of attention to this issue. And um, I actually I do remember I'm looking at the Wow chips now. I remember seeing that label. So were they in stores for a little bit? No, they were in stores for quite a while. Um, they they never were with approval was never withdrawn. There was never any significant health consequence to it. Um, but you know we just couldn't. It started, I think year one, it was the largest food product launch in history. I think it was $150 million year one, something like that. Um, but, you know, we just couldn't sustain that because the the turnoff factor was too great. Yeah, yeah. I'm reading some yeah. of the things about, you know, fecal incontinence. That's not great on a food package. Exactly. One of, one of the funny stories about that is we did um, – an extensive amount of consumer feedback collection. You know, we had uh, we have hotlines on all products anyway to call if you have any kind of a problem. But we put special numbers on this. We staffed it 24 hours a day and we tracked and we tracked what people complained about and when they complained. And on a normal day, the consumer complaints about this product were below the, the standard oil equivalent products. Mm-hmm. But when there was a story about diarrhea and loose stools and cramping uh, on national television or newspaper, the consumer complaints would spike through the ceiling. So, yeah. and, and we would we would listen to these complaints and talk to people, and they would say, "Well, you know, I I went out and I had a six pack of beer and some pizza, and then we went to the movies and had popcorn, and I came home and I had these Wow chips, and I had the most horrible <laughs> diarrhea." And, you know, and we learned that at any point in time, 40% of Americans are having some kind of a GI problem. Oh, my God. It's, my God. it's only a matter of what they identify it with. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, you learn these things the hard way sometimes. But so anyway, that ended up being um, an unsuccessful um, 
really unsuccessful for PNG because they had to build, they built plants and they had to write the whole thing off. Um, they built uh, entire plants for producing. Uh, this was a new technology. We had to build line, new potato chip lines because the oil in its um, cooled, it was, if it, it, you had to blow the oil off of it, um, the surface of it, uh, because otherwise it was sticky. But once yeah. you blew the oil off, uh, when it was still hot, then they were, they were actually cleaner to the touch than regular potato chips. But anyway, to do that, we had to put in these enormous jet engine kind of fans that blew the oil off on the lines. The, the lines were huge, you know, they're, hundred yard long lines. They're producing 50,000 pounds an hour kind of lines. Um, so we had to put in, build new lines for it, but they also could make our regular products. <laughs> That's a great story. You know, one of the things that um, is interesting to me is that, you know, that was a, I guess you could call it a failure at a very large scale. Um, I don't know. Would you call it that? Or would you call it something else? Well, we wouldn't do it again. So I guess that would- <laughs> That would be a failure. Yeah. Uh, you know, under the circumstances, I don't think we made the wrong decision at the front end. Mm-hmm. I think we were, we could have gotten into it um, a little bit more slowly. Well, I think, you know, my, my entire language around that is indicative of like how, how innovation is approached. It's, it's seen as so binary of it will either work or it won't. And in some ways it, some things will work and some things won't. Um, you may learn things from something that doesn't work that you can actually apply elsewhere. And so I think that it's just all the more important to understand um, that even if an entire project doesn't work out, there's still like purpose in that innovation and it's not a total loss. No, I mean, I'm not what I thought about failure. Um, if you aren't failing, you're not innovating. You know, you... You really, you really have to be willing to say we're not quite there yet. And I remember one time we were developing baked lays, and um, that turned out to be it was a very different product from normal potato chips, of course. And it turned out to be uh, still a very successful product, but it took us three full tries at how to how to construct the product, but also how to market it successfully before we got it right. Mm-hmm. I remember, I think it was after trial one, we showed it to the then chairman of PepsiCo, who was a very nice, genteel Southern gentleman. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tasted it and he said, well, I see what you're trying to do and you're not there yet. <laughs> and, and, and he was told, we, and we all looked at each other and said, you know, he's right. Yeah. Um, and so we did another run. It took, that was, I think it was three full tries at it. And interestingly, that was my experience generally was it took you three times to get all of it, all the parts right. So, you know, the idea is to do all that iteration in a less expensive way, um, but to acknowledge that you're going to do the iteration. There's no other way to figure your way into what it needs to look like. You can't think about it all in advance and, until consumers actually try it. So, so we got a lot better at that. At, um, we did. We stopped doing test, full blown test markets, and we did a lot more um, taking prototype products and branding out um, and exposing it to people in rapid succession. 
Um, so by the time we got to, uh, you know, we'd, we'd done a bunch of improvements to all the aspects of it. We knew we had something that was going to work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, kind of before you scale it, just make sure that you have the the right like user experience data and all that sort of stuff. Um, you know, one of the things that I wanted to also ask you about was Frito's scoops because you had some interesting stories about the innovation of Frito's scoops and how um, you came to first realize that market, and then with the actual production of how to make them, you guys had to kind of solve some interesting problems. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, Fritos are made on an extrusion line. So it's corn masa that's extruded through shape dyes um, at very high rates of speed. And then the the product that's extruded gets dropped into a belt um, that goes through a fryer. Anyway, so at one point in one of our plants, for some unknown reason, they had a sticking problem on the dyes, so they decided to chill the dyes down. Masa is a really interesting thing. I won't get into all that, but it's a it's a very difficult mm-hmm. product to make consistently. If, if you've tried to do it in your home, you know that, but on, at high speeds and high volumes, it's, it's really tricky. So anyway, they played around with chilling the dye in order to get less stickiness. And what happened was in the process of chilling the dye, it curled all of the extrusions, so they became like Frito scoops shapes. And so manufacturing was throwing away tons of this product. There's like, you know, this is this is a failed product. It doesn't meet the product specs. We can't put it in the bags. And somebody said, well, you know, but they're it's kind of a neat shape. Mm-hmm. And and somebody in the plant, this came from the plant, and they're like, well, you know, how come we couldn't do this all the time? And so they played around with how what the right dye temperature was to create consistent scoops and and we brought it to marketing and they were like we boy howdy we can sell this and more bean dip with scoop. <laughs> come on bring it on all right <laughs> at that point we had fritos queso and all kinds of stuff so um so it was it was accidental but turned out to be a really great thing but that was happening at the same time that we were launching restaurant style tostitos and so we looked we looked at the scoop that was going gangbusters we we got reba mcintyre who's a country western singer to promote it and mm-hmm. they went i remember those commercials yeah. <laughs> yeah um anyway we said well if it works in fritos which was a smaller brand than tostitos what what could we do if it worked on tostitos well so the challenge with that was that um again you have a different kind of masa it's it's not extruded, it's sheeted and stamped um, on these lines that are moving faster than you can see. And uh, the problem with it is that after you uh, sheet it, it goes into the on this line and through a fryer. So to make a scoop, you have to sheet it and cut it and shape it into a scoop and then hold it while it goes through a fryer at the blinding speed. And that was really easy idea and an incredibly difficult engineering concept. And so they were doing pilot lines in the R and D center where they'd set this up and they'd turn it on and it would run for 30 seconds. And then the line would explode because you had to, you had to mesh these cups from the bottom and the top together at exactly the right time with them <laughs> to nest and go through the, the line together. 
So um, this is one of my hero stories. So a guy who was a food technologist uh, was really working on this and he came across a way to do it, to sync it all up so that, you know, you wouldn't have explosions on the line. You could, you could actually um, hold it together. And he engineered a small prototype of it in his garage over Christmas break. And, uh, and that kind of, demonstration led to the re-engineering of the lines. And uh, it was a huge campaign investment. To, he just did he, it in his garage. He did, he did the prototype in the garage, yeah. Right. He, he just had this idea of how it might work, and he wanted to be able to show people, you know, physically how it could work. And, uh, and so he did that. Another hero was in the marketing department, and he was – busy trying to figure out how to make these shapes in a way that could be manufactured and that people wanted to buy. And I remember he spent like, I think the whole same Christmas break with his kids cutting out thousands of different shapes of scoops with cardboard and running focus groups with them. <laughs> he had all these pictures of all these different shapes and, you know, but, but these people were all on the same team and they knew they all had conviction that this was going to be a huge idea. Um, and, and in this case, we we're going to sell more salsa too. Uh, and it turned out to be a huge idea, but we had to overcome a lot of hurdles uh, to get there. So it's really fun stuff. You have people who really um, bond over those things too and have war stories to tell and are really, and, and, and those products are all still in the market today and bigger than ever. Yeah. I think I remember you telling me that the scoops, were it was like 150 million or something the first year. Uh, I don't remember exactly, but probably somewhere in that range. Yeah, right. And you know, one of the things that I, I like about what you said uh, a, a while ago to me was a lot of decisions and stress and you know conversations, debate happening in in offices and boardrooms. One thing you would you know say often is, "Guys, it's just potato chips." Um, and I think that, you know, that's an important perspective to have on things is like, you know, we're, we're still having fun here. I think there's the, you know, with innovation, there always has to be that element of like realizing like we're working really hard, um, but we also have to keep in mind like we're, we're still working on, you know, potato chips, which is a fun market. Yeah. It, it, and there's also a spirit of, we're going to show we're going to show them we can do something they didn't believe was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, there's a there's a little rebelliousness that's part of that. That's a that's a healthy rebelliousness. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and th- and that's kind of a, a unifying force too. Is that yeah. sort of joining together to to prove people wrong as the underdog? Yeah, the, like a lot of those project teams are still really close years years and years later and they've all gone on to different things um uh, but they're still bonded as friends which is a really nice idea Mm -hmm. that's amazing and you know one thing um i do want to ask you about to, to switch gears a little bit and then we'll probably wrap up here um is having had that storied career of working in innovation um working across a lot of different industries building products that have impacted you know the like i i can remember these things from my childhood they've been things that have uh, been a staple across many families households for years 
um, you know, you obviously follow the very linear path of um, leaving being a CEO, chief innovation officer to being a, a minister. <laughs> um, you know, that's the, that's <laughs> that the, all makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, that's the typical path. Um, but, you know, working in the, the Unitarian Church now, um, working on your doctorate of ministry, your demon, um, correct? You are getting your, your demon? That's right. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is um, with everything going on right now, um, with, with the protests for George Floyd, um, with the riots happening, with um, just the very, you know, that, that righteous anger and, and the protests for Black Lives Mattering and needing that visibility and, and equity and justice, um, what role do you think that uh, corporate America has a duty to play um, throughout all this? And, and what should we be thinking about, maybe not even just corporately, just um, on an individual level, as we're kind of living through these times that are so, so unprecedented to the point we're saying it's unprecedented has become almost a numbing thing because we hear it so often. Well, um, it's a big question. I know. Yeah. Well, a lot of, I'm, I'm going to say most big corporations understand that their business interest is ultimately uh, completely intersects with the public interest. Um, any kind of company that touches the consumer um, understands that. And so what corporations really need is they need stable markets and they need large, diverse markets. Um, they mostly aspire to be global corporations. And so they are often on the vanguard of figuring out how do I reflect widely different needs in my product offering and how do I bring in a diverse staff to do that? Um, obviously, there are exceptions, just like there are exceptions among individual people. Uh, there are also industries that aren't interest, that aren't consumer focused. The defense industry would come to mind. Um, but most most American corporations are selling to consumers. It's seventy percent of the economy, um, and so they. Uh, don't like disruption and they want to serve more people in more ways. And so they generally see how it's in their business interest to figure this out. And I think some companies have done a far better job than governments in building legitimate diversity, doing it not just um, with hiring quotas, although mostly they had those, but changing their practices for promoting people, developing people, giving people the experiences they needed um, in a way that was really substantive. So at PepsiCo, while I was there, um, we embarked on a first a, a long program of talking about things, which didn't yield a lot of results. And then a program of setting specific objectives um, for senior executives. And that resulted in, when I left, 60% of the senior management team of the corporation were uh, women and people of color. And the chairman that followed uh, the chairman when I was there was an Indian woman, Indra Nui. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that's, that diversity is reflected throughout the company, but it was because 
uh, you know, they serve 99% of households in the U.S. and a couple hundred countries around the world. And so you have to have leadership that understands the needs of very different people in different cultures. So um, I am more optimistic about corporate response than I am about the political response because the political world is so divided. Um, I, I think if you look at history, that there's reason to believe that this the activism we're seeing right now is necessary to bring about the change. By activism, I don't mean looting and violence. I mean being on the streets and protesting something that's just not right. Um, and that 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 is a necessary precursor to the constructive part of what uh, the, pract- the the practices that are that need to be changed. One of the one of my theories about organizational culture is you can talk about culture all day long and shared values, but people learn the culture by the practices, by how they see people doing the work and how they see decisions being made. And so you can be in a police department, you can talk all day long about your cultural aspirations, but until you change how things are done, everybody who comes into that culture sees the way it's being done now and keeps on doing it. And that's hard to do. It has, you have to be really intentional about it. So um, I think there's a lot of work to be done by governments and policing and a number of places um, and to do that work, we have to get past the incredible division we have now mm-hmm. and on to uh, trying different approaches in a more serious way. And so I think that the protests are necessary. They're a necessary galvanizing point. This is not one incident. This is, you know, 150 years of this that that under the naked light of video cameras is unceasing. Um, And you, and then you, on top of that, you have, um, you know, a virus situation, which is uh, disproportionately affecting people of color and poor people. Um, You have economic uh, catastrophe that's disproportionately falling on those in the lower income brackets. Um, and then you have this gross injustice that's visible to everybody. You know, it's, it's people hit the boiling point. Thanks for listening. And as always, feel free to visit us online at midwesternish.com. Stay tuned for more content coming soon.